Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Nehemiah. Probably not a well-known passage to uh, many of us because Nehemiah isn't a very well-known book to many of us. But if you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. It'll be on the screen. If you have an app, it's easy to find Nehemiah. If you want to know where to find Nehemiah in your actual Bible, I'll do what I do with my kids sometimes in devotions when, I'm, when I want them to find a book. I'll, I'll hold it up and say, see, it's somewhere near the middle. Okay? Nehemiah. We're going to read chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. Here we go. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the teacher of the law to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men women, or sorry, presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on the right, now you know why we didn't ask somebody to read the Bible passage. Here we go. Beside him on the right stood Mattiah, Mat- oh, sorry, see, I already messed it up. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, this one got me at nine, too. Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalon. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Last week when we began 
or, or sorry, when we came to the Advent portion of uh, the service, we said that in the third week of Advent, you turn from mourning over your sin to joyful anticipation of the coming Messiah. Well, that's very fitting today that we would be anticipating the coming Messiah because what we're going to learn today is just how desperately we need this Savior to come. We're in Nehemiah 8, but it's, it's a portion of Scripture that is not super well known because it's part of books of the Bible that are not super well known. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on Nehemiah before or a series on, on Nehemiah. I have never preached from Nehemiah before. And I'm assuming that some of you have never heard a sermon from Nehemiah before. Um, That creates a little bit of a problem because there's a lot of background to get to. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to present to you the history of surrounding the passage that we just read from Nehemiah 8. Then we're going to drill down into that passage for a few minutes And then we're going to see how this passage and and this whole time in history proves to us or emphasizes for us just how desperately we need Christmas to happen. That's what we're going to look at. So let's begin with the history. This book, Nehemiah, is actually part of Ezra-Nehemiah, which had one single author and is meant to be read as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah together. And the historical historical context is this, and I'm going to talk fast, so stick with me, okay? The people of God had broken covenant with God. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to take God's word and internalize it and long and desire to live out of it and then live out of it so that the rest of the nations could see what God was really like and what life could be like if you lived in a relationship with that God. But the people of God rebelled. They looked around at all the nations around them and they said, we want to be like the cool kids next door. And so they walked away from the living God and they embraced idols around them and they started to serve them and they they stopped following God's will and they, they, became, they became so rebellious against God that God finally said, I need to punish them. And so, when you have the northern kingdom of Israel, they were finally exiled by being conquered by Assyria and they disappear off the, uh, the, the map of history completely. And then later, the southern kingdom of Judah, they get exiled into Babylon. And a couple weeks ago, Mark preached on Daniel, which uh, comes from that time when Daniel was in Babylon as a member of the exiled people of God there. After 70 years, Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, which conquered Babylon while Daniel was in Babylon, says to the people of Israel, you are allowed to return back to your land and rebuild your temple. And so... Zerubbabel led a whole bunch of Israelites and Jews back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. That's what the first part of the book of Ezra is about. And you and I, as readers, are supposed to be hopeful about this because the prophets, before the exile, prophesied that eventually God would free his people from their exile and bring them back to the land in order to worship him. So this is coming true. This prophecy is coming true. And you're supposed to read that and say, this is great, this is exciting, the prophets predicted it, and now it's happening. But there's a problem. There were certain Jews that were not taken into exile. They stayed, okay? 
And those Jews, while they stayed, and the other Jews were in exile in Babylon, those Jews started intermarrying with the people around them, with the the other nations around them. Now, when the exiles come back to rebuild the temple, those Jews who had stayed say to the ones who came back to rebuild the temple, hey, we want to help you. And Zerubbabel says, no, you can't help us. You have defiled yourselves with your relationship with the nations around you, marrying them. You're not participating in this at all. And so they build the temple, and then they, they have a, a ceremony of dedication. Now, in Leviticus, you can read about when they built the tabernacle and had a ceremony of, ceremony of dedication. And in Kings, 1 Kings 8, you can read about when they built the, the temple temple under Solomon and they had a ceremony of dedication. Both those times when they did that, God came down in fire and in smoke to fill those buildings, the tabernacle and the temple, with His presence. This time, they have this dedication ceremony and nothing happens. God does not come down. And the people who remembered the old temple or who had heard of the old temple under Solomon's reign, they see this temple and it's kind of puny in comparison and they weep and they wail because they say it's nothing like the old temple. And so you have this hopeful beginning and then everything seems to go... Fast forward 60 years and a guy named Ezra who is a priest living in Babylon and a teacher of the law, is told that he's allowed to return to Jerusalem with a bunch of exiles in order to rebuild the spiritual lives of the, of the Jews. So he, he does it, and he returns. Problem is, is he encounters those Jews that were, that were living there all this time who had been intermarrying, and he says, those Jews who are intermarrying, they're going to defile the pure Jews who were gone into exile if they keep those wives. And so he says, along with his elders and advisors, he says to those Jews, you need to divorce all your wives and send your children away. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? God never told them to do this. And in fact... There was a contemporary prophet during this time of Ezra. His name was Malachi. And if you read his prophecy, it says right in there, God says, I hate divorce. And so you get another downer. Okay? Things are not happening the way they're supposed to happen. Well, then 13 years later, you get Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a governor in Assyria, and under the emperor uh, Artaxerxes, uh, he asks if he can return to Jerusalem because he's heard that the city wall has been torn down, and he weeps over that, and Artaxerxes says, go ahead. So Nehemiah takes a bunch of exiles back, and now we're hopeful once again. But... The problem this time is, is that remember those Jews who wanted to come, who, who, who had stayed in, in Judea all this time, they come and they say to Nehemiah, hey, we want to help rebuild the wall. Nehemiah says, no, you don't get any part with us. You're not helping us. And of course, that makes them all upset. And so they try to undermine Nehemiah's efforts to get this wall built so that by the time it, it's being built, Nehemiah has to have actually armed guards surrounding the stonemasons who are rebuilding the wall in order to protect them from these other Jews who might come and attack and try to stop the building happening. 
And on top of that, another contemporary prophet, his name was Zechariah, in his prophecy, he said that when the peoples returned to Jerusalem, it would be a city without walls because God was going to bring in the nations all around to be, participate in this new covenant that he was, he was making with his people. And Nehemiah, instead, is trying to rebuild the wall. So it seems to be counter to what the prophets are saying. So we get our third downer. Hopeful, 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 hopeful. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 8. Because in this chapter, what happens is, is Nehemiah and Ezra, they team up and they say, okay, we've got to start bringing real spiritual renewal to God's people. Okay? And so what happens is, is about thirty to 50,000 exiled Jews gather in an open-air space in the city of Jerusalem, okay? This is like Woodstock, except they're not there to listen to Jimi Hendrix. They're there to listen to the Word of God. Ezra has a big platform built so that he can be way up there and he can, he can read the Word of God and it can go out really far. He's got 13 men up there with him so that they can all take turns reading this book because they're going to read it for a really, really long time. And the people stood up jur- during the reading of the law and then there were a whole bunch of Levites who were dispersed into the crowd and their job was to help the people understand what was being read up on the platform. So the picture you have is is Ezra standing at the podium with his 13 guys on either side. He unrolls the scroll. The people, 50,000 people, stand up. And for the next six hours, he reads and preaches. I know I can preach a long time. I know my problems, trust me. You got nothing to complain about. <laughs> For six hours, okay? And the Levites are going through the crowds, holding little small groups here and there, helping people. There's, a, there's kids there. It's like, I don't understand it. And there's a Levi saying, well, this is, this is what it says, and explaining to him. There's, there's an old lady with a hearing problem. She couldn't quite hear it. And Levi, this is what they said. This is what's happening. And what's the result? The people cry Verse 9, look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah, then the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now why would that happen? Think about this. These were people, some of whom had never heard the law, ever. And maybe there were some people who, who had heard snippets of it from, from their childhood and now they were back and they were, they were actually hearing it clearly proclaimed to them. That's a good reason to be weeping. But you know what? The reason they're weeping ultimately is because they're mourning over their sin. 
You can read more about that in chapter 9, but here's what's happening is, is they're hearing the law preached to them, and they're discovering that their lives do not reflect what the law tells them it ought to reflect, and they are overwhelmed and overcome by their guilt and the sorrow for their guilt because they're not living the way they ought. They're convicted of their sin. That's why they're weeping. But, and this is a huge but, This mass repentance, this sea of 50,000 people on their knees, confessing their sin, crying out, I am an adulterer, I have been a gossip, I have loved money, I have been selfish, I have been angry towards my children, I have been disobedient towards my parents. People just confessing their sin and admitting their sin and being overwhelmed by their sin. This event actually kicks off a massive party. Because in verse 10, Nehemiah says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some, those, send some to those who have nothing prepared. Listen to this. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah tells the people to go party. Why? Because they're forgiven. You cannot experience forgiveness if you don't go through repentance. Listen, repentance is painful. Repentance means admitting ugly things about yourself. It is true. But friends, if you want to experience the joy of the Lord, if you want to know what it's like to be loved beyond your wildest dreams, yet known completely intimately and deeply at the exact same time, the only path to get there is repentance. But it is an absolutely beautiful thing. If Grace Valley would become a church where people were happy to repent, Happy to admit their weakness. Happy to say, I suck. Happy to say, I'm a failure. Happy to say, I'm too greedy. I'm too self-centered. I'm too lustful. I'm too resentful. I'm too short-sighted. I'm too lacking in self-control. If we were open and honest about that with one another so that we could collectively together experience the joy of the Lord, I have no idea what this church would be like. We're making small progress towards that, but deep down, we have to admit, all of us, I think, we have to admit we're not as open and honest about the truth of our inner selves as we could be and as we should be. But that's what happened in this moment here. And so Nehemiah said, because you're, you're repenting and, and owning your stuff, God is forgiving you. God is wiping the slate clean. God is saying, I've known that about you and I'm taking it all away from you and you don't have to live under the guilt of that anymore. So go celebrate. Go party. This is the high water mark, okay, of Israel's restoration. Everything seems to be turning around for them. Remember I said it was like, well, now it's going, Things are looking so good. Why? Why are things looking so good? Point two. Oh, you're like, oh, we're only at point two? Yes. Six hours, people. Point two. The reason 
we're at this high watermark is the Word. It's the Word. The restoration of the people of God was brought on by the restoration of the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. Do you hear that? They needed more than restoration of temples and walls. They needed a restoration of the covenant, of their relationship with God. And it was through the preaching of the word, through their hearing of the word and receiving of the word, that revival happened. It happens always through the ministry of the word. That's the cause of this event. Everybody's affected. Men, women, children, young, old. And I want to show you just quickly some details about that. Notice, first of all, they came expecting to hear from God. Expecting to hear from God. Verse 1, They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. They wanted God to come and speak to them. And for six hours, they stood there listening to it. Now, by the way, if you've ever been in a church where they say, please stand for the reading of God's word, which, by the way, we have toyed with doing here. In any case, if you're ever in a church that does that and then they stand for the reading of God's word, this is why. This is where they got the idea from. They, they stood for the, for, the, for the reading of God's word and they wanted it explained to them because they, they anticipated that when the word of God was read and preached, when the Bible was read and preached, they were going to hear from God, from the supreme being, the supernatural one, the the only God that exists, who is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-glorious, all-holy, all-righteous, all-just, all-merciful, all-good. They were going to hear from Him. Revival, friends, you read church history, revival always, 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 always comes with a renewed interest in the Bible. Always, every single time in the history of the church, people started reading the Bible, it started convicting their hearts, they started confessing their sin, they started being overcome with joy at forgiveness, and they just couldn't get enough Bible. It will not happen without that. I'm in a life group with five guys. We're studying a book of the Bible together. We're using the same questions that force us to actually spend time wrestling with the passage and understand it, and the guys are eating it up discovering as they sit there things that they never saw before. And then when we get together and we talk about it, discovering more things that they never saw before, the Bible's just becoming alive to them in a way that, that for some of them had never ever happened before. It's an amazing thing. Some of you have told me about how you're diving into the Right Now Media account that you have and you're discovering sermons and conference material and passages of the Bible and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's exciting. you. I think it's wonderful. And I just want to encourage all of you. Some of you, like, and I'm not, I'm not going, some of you, the reality is, some of us hardly read the Bible at all, really. And we wonder, why do I have such a 
lame relationship with God. He doesn't seem very real to me. He doesn't seem to speak to me. He doesn't seem to be very present in my life. Meanwhile, he wants to talk to you, and anytime you open this book, he will talk to you. It's not like when you read the Bible, you're reading about God in relationship with people from like centuries and centuries and centuries ago, and you're just kind of reading the accounts of their relationship with God. No, every time you read the Bible, God, in the moment, in the here and now, speaks directly directly to you. You. It's unbelievable if you think about it, but it's true. He speaks to you now. And so, in the last weekly update, there was a link to the Bible reading plan generator. I encourage you to look it up. Go to the website. You can customize your Bible reading plan along, I don't know how many different variables. You want to read the whole Bible in a year? You say, Set it up to do that. You say, I can't do that much. That's insane. I can only read half the Bible in a year. You can set it up to do that. I want to read the Psalms twice because I love the Psalms. You can set it up to do that. You can do almost anything you want. It's unbelievable. You print it out. You put it in your Bible. And you start reading God's Word. I'm getting a little tired. Okay. Second thing. They revered God's Word. It says in verse 5, or verse six, or verse five. Ezra opened the book. All the people uh, could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, they all stood up, showing reverence for it. But then look at verse six. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, responded, "Amen, Amen." Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Friends, I got to admit this. This is a bit of a of a rebuke to me. It's a. I'm a minister. This. This book, I've dedicated my entire vocation to this book, and I have to be honest with you, sometimes when I open it, I can be just so blasé about it. Oh yeah, the Bible, oh, yeah, the Bible. Oh, yeah. let's, read, let's, let's read something from the Bible. Quickly, let's read something from the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you should go back to olden days when, you know, everybody had to shut up and be dead quiet, and then the Bible was like carefully opened and put down, and we just sort of like, it was almost like some weird totem, and if you, you know, if your kids... Uh, you know, whispered to one another during the Bible reading, mom or dad were like, wham, smack a hand with a wooden spoon or something. I'm not saying let's go back to those days, but, but to understand that this is a precious book with timeless truth given to us by God is something that we deeply need to recover. I remember not too long ago watching a video of a tribe in Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or one of these places, an ethnic tribe who were receiving the Bible in their own language for the first time, and it was on video. And this Bible, like, it was an, a plane, because they were on some island or something. This plane flies in, and it lands at this village, and all these people are lined up, and they're beating drums, and they're dancing, and they're super excited, and then this book comes out, and they all, like, do basically what the people here in, in Nehemiah did. They're, they're weeping and wailing and praising God, and it made me cry to see these people just so desperate to get the Bible in their own hands, in their own language, and to finally have it, and the joy on their face because it was God's word look at verse 8 they read from the book of the law making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read they wanted to understand it they wanted to they didn't want opinions of people it didn't want their own kind of unique take on it they were desperate to understand God's thoughts 
And then in verse 12, amazingly it says, they all went to their party, okay, basically. It says to send portions of food to aid, celebrate with great joy. Why? Because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Because they understood God's word, they were full of joy. Full of joy because God's word is that story. It's the story. The story of our desperate need to be saved. We are living in darkness and we don't even know it. I'm, I don't know if I should say this on the live stream, but I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching a movie with my, one of my sons who's never seen this movie before. I'm not going to name it in case I... It's about... Um, how do I do this? Okay, forget it. Maybe I shouldn't even talk about it. It's about, okay, it's the Matrix. And it's about living in a reality that is false, that you don't even know is real, because you live in that reality and you have to be taken out of it to know that it's false. Do you get what I'm saying? So many of us, friends, are living in that. We are blinded by the world in which we live and the narrative that's being told to us. We have no clue that it's fake and that it's false and that it's unreal. But you come to this book and you get this story of how God breaks into history with Jesus, our Emmanuel, and he comes and he lives for us and he dies for us and he rises for us and he ascends for us and he sends his Holy Spirit for us so that you and I can know the truth about the world and about what makes life joyful. That's what they discovered. And it brought them joy. And they received it and they obeyed it. That's verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all. The people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. First of all, have you ever wept at the Bible? You ever read something in in the Bible and it made you cry? Made you cry over your sin? Have you ever let the Bible make you do something that you deep down really didn't want to do, but you got to do it because the Bible says do it? Have you ever believed something because the Bible says it's true and you have to believe it, even though deep down in your heart you don't really like it and you don't want to believe it? I remember being a youth pastor and having this young man in grade 12, very thoughtful kid, but kind of a, 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 a combative, kind of recalcitrant kind of kid. He, we were talking about the doctrine of election, and he hated it. Oh man, did he hate it. Thought it was terrible, the worst thing you could ever come up with. How could there be a God who actually, actually produced this idea? And so I said, well, let's look at the Bible. And we looked at the Bible, and we looked at Ephesians 1, we looked at Romans 9, we looked at John 6, and we talked and we argued, and finally he was convinced that it must be true because he couldn't escape what the Bible said about it, and he said, you know what, fine, I'll believe it, but I don't have to like it. That's the real deal, friends. That's when you're in a real relationship with God. If you want a real relationship with God, you have got to let Him mess you up. Make you believe things that you deep down don't really want to believe. Make you do things that deep down you don't really want to do. And make you weep over things that you used to think were no big thing. Chicken wing. 
If you don't do that, you will have a God who affirms your own decisions and beliefs, who makes you feel good, is your great cheerleader. Oh, if we would become a church that took so seriously the word of God that it didn't matter what the culture said, we said, you know what, I don't even get it, but I'm sticking to it because he said it. I don't know what we would look like. I'd love to find out. All right, last thing. Maybe I'm all worked up because uh, this is the last in-person service for a while. I don't know. But I think it's because I, I am afraid, I'm afraid that even in solid churches like I think this one is, that we are losing, people are becoming increasingly what you could call biblically illiterate. They're losing their interest in the Bible. They're losing their knowledge of the Bible. They're losing their hunger to know the Bible and study it. I'm not saying that is what's happening here. I'm just, it's a fear I have. Anyhow, let's move on. Last point. Everything looks really good right now. Chapters 8 through 12 of Nehemiah are awesome. Remember I said, and this time we're going, it's good, right through Nehemiah chapter 12, and then we get to chapter 13, and everything goes, everybody goes home, they go back to their life, and the whole country goes south again. Nehemiah goes on a tour of the city, and he's furious by what he sees, because he sees that everybody's broken their vows. Zerubbabel, had done this work to rebuild the temple. It's all undone because now the temple is staffed by corrupt and unqualified people. Ezra's work is undone because people are no longer reading the law and following the law. They're violating the Sabbath and living for themselves. Nehemiah's work is undone because now people are building uh, marketplaces on the wall and they're starting to uh, open their, their, their stores, so to speak, excuse me, and do business on the Sabbath in violation of the will, will of God. And Nehemiah is furious and he flips out And he actually goes to one of these markets and he starts beating up the vendors and it says that he's pulling out their hair and then finally he turns to God and he says, don't blame me, it's not my fault, I did the best I could and then the book ends. Yeah, it's weird. It just stops. What is up with that? There's a huge point to it, friends, and it's massive. You can build wall, rebuild walls, you can rebuild the temple, you can even pull out the scroll and start reading the law, but if there's no change in the heart, it doesn't mean anything. See, the people were exiled because they were hard-hearted. They come back, they're still hard-hearted. And this This proves to us why we need Christmas so badly, guys. Listen, remember I mentioned Malachi? Contemporary prophet. His prophecy is basically an indictment. It's it's like a, a dispute, a lawsuit against these returned, restored Jews. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how you violated the Sabbath. Here's how you've cheated on the Lord as an adulteress. It goes on and on and on and on and on, okay? And he's a prophet, so he's speaking for God to his rebellious, recalcitrant, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, obstinate people. But 
at the very end of Malachi, in chapter 4, it says this. These are the last words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Now, you've got to understand, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. These are the last words of the last book of the Old Testament, and then God goes silent for 400 years. You don't think God talks to you? 400 years, the people don't hear anything from God until an angel goes to visit a man named Zechariah. And he tells this man, you're going to have a kid. You're going to have a son. And he says this. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist came to prepare the people for the coming Lord, Jesus, who was the Word made flesh. You see, friends, what we need is not just the law of God telling us how to live. We need the law of God in the flesh. Jesus, who fulfilled the law, who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died because it's only when we read the Word as teaching us about Jesus, our Savior, do we get life. All the law can do is condemn. All the law can do is tell you how you failed and how you've blown it again and how you suck and how you don't deserve God's grace and how you don't deserve His favor. But when you read the law in the light of Jesus Christ, you see the one who fulfilled it all for you. So that God Almighty, when He looks at you, doesn't see the failure, doesn't see the one who sucks, doesn't see the one who doesn't read their Bible enough, who doesn't give enough money, who doesn't go to church enough, who doesn't care for their neighbors enough, who fail, 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 fail. He doesn't see that he sees his perfectly obedient son in all his purity and glory that's what he sees when he looks at you in john chapter 5 the jewish leaders come to jesus and of course they're not happy with him again and jesus says to them this he says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Friends, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. No amount of Bible study, if it's not meant to encounter Jesus, to know him better, to love him more deeply, will be for your good, but every time you see how the story whispers his name, your heart has changed a little bit more. Just, it's a long process, okay, team? It's a long process. It just is. The heart is hard. But every story will whisper his name and it will change you a little bit more, make you a little more soft, make you a little more compassionate, make you a little more faithful, make you a little more like Jesus. Thanks for listening to God.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess we don't love it the way we should. Forgive us for that. New Year's is a time of renewal and fresh starts. And maybe some of us, Father, we can commit to seeking you more diligently in your word this new year. But for all of us, we pray that you will create a hunger for your word deeper and deeper and deeper inside of us so that we would feed on it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.